Hello, and welcome to this FRDH, First Rough Draft of History podcast. I'm Michael Goldfarb. Twitter doesn't have to be a world of trolls and sarcasm, even though mostly it is. When I started using the platform a decade ago, it was to follow news out of the Middle East, particularly Iraq. When I got up at 6 a.m. in London, it was 9 in Baghdad and Mosul, and colleagues and friends would be tweeting the news of the day. Recently, through one of these friends, I saw a tweet by Assyriologist Dr. Moody al-Rashid. It was about a cuneiform tablet from 1000 BC that described treating someone with depression. The link Moody al-Rashid made between then and now, in terse Twitter language, spoke to me. I have been to Mosul a few times. That city grew on the site of Nineveh, the ancient Assyrian capital. My dear friend Ahmad Shokat told me about Nineveh and showed me the remains of the city's walls in the days after Saddam Hussein was overthrown. After Ahmed was murdered in Mosul, as I wrote the story of his life, I read a great deal about the Assyrian Empire and became mildly obsessed with cuneiform, the odd script in which the records of the empire were kept. So, having met her on Twitter, I was keen to meet Dr. Moody al-Rashid in person. Luckily, she's a postdoctoral researcher at Oxford University, so I jumped on a bus from London and met her at a coffee house in Oxford. I started by asking her what she saw when she looked at cuneiform inscriptions. I see writing, you know. I know that, uh, you know, for some people even look at them as sort of works of art. I see a document, really, when I see a cuneiform tablet. It's a difficult-to-read document. And what makes it so difficult to read? Cuneiform is, it's impressed. It's not drawn. It's pressed into clay. So it's a 3D script. So uh, if you're looking at a photo of a tablet, it's for me anyway, really difficult to read cuneiform because you need to be able to move the tablet around to get the shadows just right to actually see what the signs are that have been impressed. A flat, you know, a sort of flat image is just not enough. It's not textured enough. Um, so we, we do have tablet drawings in our field which take an immense amount of work because there's a lot of interpretation involved that take a 3D image and turn it into something, you know, drawn like, like this. So that's easy much much easier to read because it's sort of already been interpreted right. for you okay so, so you, you you've got a, a basically it's a printout of a fragment and and it's like on an a4 size but you can i can see where the fragment itself has been worn away or broken off and there are the cuneiform figures which always look to me like chicken's feet. Um, you're not and, alone. <laughs> and, 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 but when you look at the real thing, you're actually looking at how deep these figures are, are sunk into the fragment that survived. Exactly. And, and you do have to move um, the tablet around. There is a technology that is called um, RTI, um, and, and it allows you on a computer screen to scroll across the screen and it moves the shadow for you. So you can sort of read from digitized images. So you know that I call my podcast FRDH, which stands for First Rough Draft of History. Mm-hmm. These, these, re- these fragments actually are the original drafts of any kind of history because these are some of the oldest examples of writing and records being kept anywhere. Yes, absolutely. Um, I mean, not these—not the texts I work on. Those are from the first millennium BC, uh, which is considered in my field quite late. <laughs> but but the the uh, earliest known um, uh, writing comes from Sumer, uh, so southern uh, south 
eastern Iraq uh, from around 3400 BC uh, is when we start to see um, proto-cuneiform. So it's not a fully-fledged writing system in that um, it's more like mnemonic devices um, that people initially had to use to keep track of a growing administration. So it was an, an administrative necessity to develop a mechanism for recording information in a way that anyone could retrieve, not just one person, you know, who the person who wrote the tablet. So this is a huge leap, actually, in in, in social development and in, in civilizational development, the idea that there's a, enough of a future coming mm-hmm. and a past that needs to be recorded mm-hmm. as a guide. You need records. You know precisely what has happened. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it, it is, in a way, a technology that was, that was developed to, um, to keep track um, of uh, rations, of uh, incomings and outgoings for, you know, an agricultural society, of distribution of um, a, um, agricultural products. So it, it was just a way, again, to, to keep track. So, so you're absolutely right, a way of an awareness that something now needs to be recorded that will, you know, become part of the past and in order to be retrieved in the future. Muli al-Rashid, Saudi-born, American-educated, chose as her area of specialization in Assyriology, medical records. I was just really taken by how how human these descriptions were and how it really, I mean, up, up until that point, we'd in our curriculum really just been exposed to, you know, texts and artifacts. You forget there are people making them and there are people behind them because you're just so desperate to try to keep up with uh, everything that you're learning. And and for me, it was a real it was an important moment because it reminded me, um, as silly as that sounds, I should have known it from the beginning that we're you know there are people in the past, not just stuff. People who suffer the same way we do. Exactly, and they may have recorded it in different ways and understood it differently, and it would have fit into a completely different system of how they understood the universe and made sense within that system. Um, but some of the problems are fundamentally really familiar, and um, and I found that um, nothing rigorous had been done on mental health and illness. You know, they you may say these problems. Let's be specific. Um, so I I focused on mood. Uh, issues in my thesis. I did a little bit on sort of um, thought disorders, um, but but it was mainly mood, and so I focused on descriptions of depressed states and anxiety states, and that covers, you know, deliberately vague to cover a range of experiences that fall within those categories in the ancient material. The thing that really resonated for me was that these are you know, these are ancient, and they're human, and they're okay, and you know, in 1000 BC or in 600 BC, people got help for them, and that was perfectly sort of acceptable. And as someone who did suffer from depression, that really resonated for me. She took out a translation of a clay tablet listing symptoms that sounded very familiar. The symptom description begins... If a man, and a man is just a kind of placeholder, it's, it's the actual sign used, it's the sign that represents the word for man, becomes more and more depressed. His limbs are limp all the time. He is continually bloated. He gnaws his lips, his ears buzz. His hands are numb. His knees and legs are, cause him gnawing pain. His epigastrium continually protrudes. He is not able to have intercourse with a woman. He is not attracted by a woman. Cold tremors afflict him repeatedly. He is in turn fat and thin. He continually salivates. He is often irritable. He cannot stand his bed, and he is sometimes paralyzed. That man is bewitched. So we have a variety of symptoms here that 
it's almost impossible to imagine them all happening to a single person. But this text provided a kind of um, a resource for anyone who's, say, suffering from five of those things. They could go to an, an ashipu, which was a type of medical professional, problematically translated as exorcist in the secondary literature, um, and say, you know, I am, I'm struggling to sleep, I'm depressed, and I'm, I have weak limbs. What, what can you do for me? And that person would have this text to go to, or, or similar ones. To What's interesting is that almost all those terms mm-hmm. are descriptions of physical things mm-hmm. that if you had them sequentially or two or three at once, as you said, Mm -hmm. today we'd recognize as depressed. But you actually use the word depression. Mm -hmm. And I'm wondering, does that word actually exist Mm -hmm. in the Sumerian language? Uh, so in Akkadian, there, there are a couple words for depression. In this particular text, it's not my translation. I'm using a translation by um, two scholars, uh, Abush and Schwemer. Um, and it's, it's actually a word that I translate as anxiety um, or heartbreak, to, to use it more specifically. And, the, and the, the, in Akkadian, the word is chip libi which means breaking of the heart. Libu can be translated in many ways. So so it could be depression, it could be anxiety. And I think you're absolutely right to note that there are a lot of physiological symptoms that run together with this that we would still recognize today, you know, feeling, uh, you know, um, weakness or uh, in other descriptions you have um, sort of heart palpitation type of descriptions or closing of the throat, that sort of things that we associate with a panic attack. And and I'm, I imagine, I mean, this kind of mix of physiological and emotional is typical in these texts that do reference emotional states. And I imagine it was because of two reasons. One is that there was no sort of separation between mind and body that is um, pervades our medical culture. And that it was probably easier to treat a stomach ache and weight loss and weight gain than something as abstract as depression, you know. Mm. They had no, no, no sense of a split between mind and body? They did have a word for mind um, and for kind of reasoning. And they did, in, in a few texts, there are hints that they recognized that an injury to the head uh, resulted in altered behavior or speech problems that you'd associate with a kind of disruption in, in thought processes. Um, and the word for mind, uh, or that we translate as mind, is temu. Um, but they but they didn't necessarily locate thought in, in the brain. The, that was kind of distributed amongst internal organs. And the libu, the one that I translated as heart, heart earlier, is one of the kind of seats of thought and emotion that you have. So th- there was some recognition that there was something responsible for thinking and emotion. And then there was the body. But that thing responsible for thinking and emotion was integrated into the body. Another area Dr. Al-Rashid studies are the records of women's health. Unfortunately, in the medical material, you only have descriptions of when things have gone wrong, not just in a normal, you know, normal period, for example. You have either the blood has stopped flowing, but there's no pregnancy, or there's too much blood. Um, flowing, and those are the kinds of things that would be treated in relation to menstruation. Um, but you all, there is also an awareness that you know if someone is pregnant, how long the gestation period is, and when the kind of safe zone is. So, in modern medicine, we say at around sort of 12 weeks, you're allowed to sort of announce that you're pregnant. I mean, it's a kind of bizarre to have to wait that long when miscarriage is so common. But in the in at least in the late Babylonian period, five months was the kind of I mean, not for pregnancy and announcements on Facebook, but just the kind of <laughs> when, when you were thought to be more or less in the clear, uh, five months was the, the waiting period.
And then there was also awareness that if there was bleeding during a pregnancy, that was bad and had to be dealt with. Um, or if there was no growth uh, in a pregnancy, that there was probably something wrong with the fetus and there was a need to, to produce bleeding to miscarry the baby on purpose. So uh, to, to give, essentially give an, uh, an abortion to, to an expectant mother. It, I mean, I wouldn't say that the methods used were... They, they don't necessarily make sense to us, but that's probably because we can't translate sort of half of the words for the minerals and herbs used. But, um, but they did, you know, they did their best. They, they did treat these as medical issues, and there was nothing weird about that. So if you're, as a contemporary scholar, a woman, in a time of actually tremendous change and ferment for women mm -hmm. and their role in society. What do you think when you look at something from that long ago mm -hmm. that's so detailed about obstetrical and gynecological health? Mm -hmm. uh, I mean, that's a good question. It's, it's, it, and it's one that's even complicated even further by the fact that these texts were probably written by men. And, you know, medical professionals and, uh, and the scribes that copied those types of um, texts down. So there is a kind of, there's still a kind of bias that you can see in the sources. But at the same time, uh, the fact that they were treated, they were recorded and treated as part of the medical tradition, I find to be... Um, you know, not surprising necessarily, but um, it makes perfect sense. But it is refreshing to see that it is kind of part of the corpus, and it, and they're treated like medical problems. They're not sort of emotionalized or not taken as seriously just because they're associated with women. Beyond medical records, Assyriologists are learning more and more about women's lives from the cuneiform tablets. Women scholars, in particular, but quite a few men as well, are doing a lot at the moment to to bring these sources to light. I was skimming an article the other day about women in Urkesh, which is in uh, what, what is now Syria, um, outside of, or, or is part of a small village called Tel Mozan, I think. Um, and there is, there is a queen who's depicted on a number of seals, and she's depicted the same size and at the same level as, as the king, her husband. So there is this kind of sense of... Um, of at least equality in depictions, and uh, and she played an important administrative role. She um, oversaw quite a bit of um, sort of three parts of the palace, three major uh, segments of the palace. So I mean, stories like that are starting to be brought to light, and I think that will even if it is you know relegated to a particular sphere of society, it will allow us to better answer that question on this. When you pick up a clay. Tablet. I know mostly you're working from actually photographs, but when you pick up one of these things, what do you feel? Mm -hmm. I always feel this kind of, I know it sounds a bit ridiculous, this sort of magical connection with the, you know, person who made the document and just think of it as something that was made by someone in let's say 1000 BC um, who thought whatever it was that they needed to write was important enough to record in this, in this way and there's something wonderful about that. There is something wonderful about it all. I will now think of depression as being an aching of the heart as much as a melancholy in the brain. And that's all for this FRDH podcast. If you are on Twitter, you can follow Dr. Moody al-Rashid at Moody, M-O-U-D-H-Y. No snark, just interesting facts from the deep past. And please, don't forget to visit the website, www.goldfarbpod.com, to listen to other podcasts and make a donation to keep the podcasts coming. Thanks.